Thanks for taking the time to check out this episode of Desert Island Goals. Video links to all the goals we're going to discuss in this podcast are in the description below, as well as social media profiles for myself, the podcast itself, and our guest. Please take the time to follow us all right now. There is a good chance there will be some strong language at some point during this podcast, just letting you know that ahead of time. And please take the time right now to give us a five-star review on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Okay, welcome again to another edition of Desert Island Goals. I am your host, Callum Squires. Thank you very much for taking the time to check out this podcast. As always, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. It really does help us get the word out about our podcast. And joining me today is a very, very special guest, one I've been very excited to talk to. I'm convinced this conversation will be fantastic, and hopefully you enjoy it as well. Danny Driscoll. Danny, first things first, how are you? Thank you for taking the time to join us. No worries at all, my friend. I'm very well, thank you. And how are you, Callum Squires? I am good, man. Always excited when I get a chance to chat to you about football. <laughs> so, Danny, we always start the episodes by obviously introducing our guests to the audience, letting them know a little bit about you and how you became the football fan that you are today. So, where are you from? What team do you support? And what are your earliest memories of being a football fan growing up? Okay, yes. So I am from a place in the north of England called Bradford. My father and my brother were both avid United fans by the time I came out of the womb. So I instantly gravitated towards being a Manchester United fan. And it's been a lot of joy up until the great Sir Alex Ferguson left. But yeah, I suppose that's how I got into football and everything that comes with it through my brother and my father. My mum's side of the family are all devout Bradford City fans, so it did cause a bit of dispute when um, my dad kind of, yeah, stole us away. The divide between your family of, of United and Bradford City, do you, do you have a soft spot for Bradford? Are they someone that you would class as someone you cheer for? Um, to a degree, yeah, I would say. I mean, all my mum's side of the family, like I said, Many of them go home and away, something that isn't really talked about um, too often in the press, I suppose, in comparison to uh, tragedies like Hillsborough, Hazel, the Bradford City fire disaster. Um, when that occurred, most of my mum's side of the family were in the stadium that day. So, yeah, there's still those sort of evocative scenes from that club that do strike a chord with my family personally. Yeah, I'd say a soft spot is there. I mean, I, w- I was rooting for him wholeheartedly when they had that famous comeback against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, where Mourinho's Chelsea were 2 0 up and then they came back and uh, won 4 2. Um, and I mean, I mean, on that point, so I, like my uncle, my cousin that were there, they, they were often saying, uh, subsequent to that, like all the riches I've been spoiled of as a Man United fan, I've, I've never felt anything that they felt in the stadium that day because it's such an underdog story, David and Goliath, which I, I take that point on, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, that's a long-winded answer, but I'd say there is a soft spot there. But my primary allegiance and loyalty is with Manchester United. And, of course, this is something that we need to focus on throughout this episode. As, as spoiler yeah. alert, Manchester United will be coming up a number of times on the, uh, <laughs> on the Desert Island goals that Danny has picked. You made a very apt comparison there that United are a Goliath and... Yes. Very infrequently in, in your fandom have United been an underdog. It's somewhat remarkable that we've made it to episode, I think this will be episode 11 of the podcast when this comes out. Then you're the first Manchester United fan that we've had on, which is 
maybe wow. a diamond of myself in, inherently. But the, <laughs> the, the question really is, you know, being a United fan, effectively being everyone else's enemy, if that makes sense. How does that affect you as a football fan? Because I think realistically, the only people who ever cheer for United are United fans. Whereas if you're another team, you might have neutrals, you know, cheer for you in a specific situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, without doubt. I mean, I was sort of public enemy number one growing up in school because, well, predominantly in my school, it was either Bradford City fans or Leeds United fans. And obviously to every Bradford City fan, you're a glorious supporter. And, you know, that, that, those sort of accusations were coming from my mum's side of the family as well. And then... To a Leeds United fan, you are the antithesis, you are the enemy and, you know, vice versa. So, yeah, it, it, it was always a situation where I did kind of feel hated as a United fan, but, yeah, willing to give it back as well at the same time, particularly to Leeds. So, obviously, where you grew up, like you said, Leeds, Leeds and Bradford dominated the football landscape and Leeds and Manchester United have a significant rivalry historically and in the present, not that United and Bradford particularly do. So... Yeah, would you would you put Leeds at the top of the list of your rivals? I guess I mean I and I say that because obviously it's it's not a secret, but I myself am a Manchester United supporter, and where I grew up at the other end of the country, as many of my friends like to remind me, um, <laughs> you know, we we both grew up in an era where Arsenal and Manchester United were the top two in the league and were constantly going at each other over championships and FA Cups and everything else. So. Correct. Arsenal were always more of a rival in my head than the regional rival of Leeds. But equally, you know, there's Liverpool, obviously City, Chelsea at times. How, how do you kind of put your Manchester United rivalries in order? If I offered you that as a top five, Liverpool, Jesus. City, Chelsea, Leeds and Arsenal, would you be able to rank them? What a fantastic question. Um, <laughs> uh, that's hard, man. Um, I, I'd say... Because I spent the majority of my adult life in Manchester and, yeah, I, I suppose the sort of genesis of this new age of Man City where they've become what they are now, this sort of enterprise, you know, the Manchester branch of the City Group sort of situation, as I like to remind them. Yeah, I'd say that kind of puts them still at the top. But Leeds, if you, I think if you would have asked me when I was there, when I was in primary school, I would have had Leeds at the top of the group. But what was it, a 16, 17-year absence that they were yeah. at the Premier League? So it's sort, it sort of just... It was always there, you know what I mean? And we had them in the Cup a few times. They had that well, that horrific day where Jermaine Beckford got the winner for him in the FA Cup. Yep. Then we had, I think we did them 3-0 in the League Cup. Well, there's like a young Paul Pogba and Ravel Morrison. And I, I think it just sort of... That, that then pushed Leeds down the pecking order for me. So I, I'd, I'd probably go City, Liverpool, oh, Leeds and Ar- still Leeds, and then Arsenal, Chelsea, if I was to rank them in, in, in an order of five. But yeah, I can't ignore that the backdrop to our youth was that unbelievable, fascinating and vicious rivalry with Arsenal. So that hatred remains and it is, it is back with the full glory now that they've decided to play a bit of football again. 100%. But no, I, I'm glad. We do have one particular moment later on where we will just about get to touch on United and Arsenal, which is good. It's not one of the goals Danny has selected, I will say that, but there is a link in there which we'll, uh, we'll be able to chat about later on. Okay, so in, in 
me asking you to be a guest on this show and, and putting this together, speaking to other friends of ours, in particular, Sean Simmons, I know he went back and forth and back and forth and really found the decision-making process of nailing the five goals down really, yeah. really difficult. Now, we will always give you a chance to give some honorable mentions at the end of the show, but how hard was this process for you? Was this an enjoyable process for you? Was it stressful? And what went into a goal <laughs> making your Desert Island goals list? Yeah, it was incredibly hard. And yeah, I've, I think if I would have put as much thought and attention into other aspects of my life as I have with this task, I'd be a very <laughs> successful man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, horrifically, horrifically hard thing to do. And as we've already touched on, we've been spoke with Riches as Manchester United fans, like the sort of plethora of unbelievable goals that we've witnessed made it a near impossible task. But the, the way I've sort of done this is instead of trying to choose the most beautiful goal or, you know, the best technical goals, I've kind of gone with the five most evocative for me personally for different reasons whether they put me back in a, a moment in time, whether they evoke a certain feeling. So it's not necessarily a list of beautiful goals on the eye, though some of them are. But um, yeah, I guess the ones that are more personal to me. Barry Pallister calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! You just couldn't write this script. What a fairy story for Eric Cantona. Manchester United in front. Four minutes to go. And Cantona has claimed the crucial goal. Okay, goal number one for Danny. And it's a big one. It's a trophy-winning goal. We are headed to Wembley, the 11th of May, 1996. And it's one of these big rivalries that we were just talking about, asking Danny to rank. And it is an FA Cup final between the two most successful clubs in English football history. And this is Manchester United against Liverpool in the 1996 FA Cup final. The two teams are star-studded in their own rights. McManamans, Fowlers, John Barnes, Stan Collymore, even Ian Rush as a late substitute for the Liverpool side. And obviously the class of 92 dominates the Manchester United lineup. But it is all about a certain mercurial Frenchman who is arguably one of, if not the greatest Manchester United players in Premier League history, and arguably one of, if not the greatest player in Premier League history, depending on who you ask. But Eric Cantona steps up with five minutes left of this FA Cup final to win it for Manchester United. It's a fantastic goal. The corner is served into the box by uh, number 24, David Beckham. David James, Liverpool goalkeeper at the time, flaps at the corner somewhat, and Eric Cantona, waiting on the edge of the box, adjusts his body and volleys it first time back through a crowd of Liverpool players into the net. Q pandemonium, Sir Alex Ferguson going absolutely crazy on the bench and Manchester United win the FA Cup in 1996. Danny, talk me through why this one made your list. I was trying to work out, do you remember this at the time or is this a goal that you've 
got into afterwards? Because I, I think you would have been four, four. Exactly that. No, yeah. that, that's kind of the opening point, mate. So this is my very, very, very first footballing memory. It's the <sighs> first ever goal I remember. Remember nothing really about the game itself. Just that one pinpoint moment and. I sort of remember, basically, I'm assuming it was the same with your parents as well, where they've grown up in a generation where there's a huge sense of occasion around FA Cup final day. Um, You can argue, I guess, when when we were younger, that's kind of when the Premier League really took off with the subscription money. And I don't want to say the FA Cup paled into insignificance or anything, but sort of the league overtook the FA Cup when you could argue back in our parents' time, it it was the other way around, really. But... Yeah, when, when me and my brother and my sister were all young, I remember my parents sort of made a big thing about it. We'd watch the FA Cup final, like as a family on the TV. And like you say, I was four years old at the time. Didn't have a clue what was going on. I could just sort of... I remember sensing it was something like Christmas Day. Do you know what I mean? It was like... Yeah. It was a sense of occasion, as I just said. And Camp and I was just sort of a name I'd heard in passing from my brother and my dad, my brother being four years older than me. And yeah, I, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what the situation was really. I just remember being crowded around the TV and this really sticks with me, just seeing this figure hit the ball. And it's not really the goal that sticks with me, it's, it's the reaction. It was my first ever insight into what a leather ball hitting a piece of net does to people because my dad <laughs> went absolutely berserk. I remember seeing just tens of thousands of people on the TV going crazy and it was, it was yeah, it was just a spectacle and it just hit me. I mean, the embarrassing thing is because I was four years old, I ran to my mum crying because I didn't know why my dad was screaming and shouting so much. So he quickly took a bit of a telling off from her. But yeah, in the fullness of time, I obviously forgive him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that was my very first insight into football and what a, what a goal does to people. And that was the beginning. So yeah, I felt like that had to be in there. The genesis of you as a football fan, it makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah. He, the, the, the way he moves his body, I mean, obviously, you know, now we're of an age where we can look at it a bit more clinically than maybe yeah. you did in the moment where your dad scared you. But yeah. the, the, actual, <laughs> the actual technique of the goal from Cantona is remarkable because the way he shuffles his feet to move his body backwards and out of the way... <laughs> It's outrageous. He's going backwards as he hits the ball, doesn't he? It's the, he just manoeuvres himself into a position where, yeah, he just conjures up a bit of magic. Like, that was his thing, though, wasn't it? Big game, big player. There you go. Don't worry it's... about it. Collar up. <laughs> it's, it's remarkable because I think so much of, I guess, analysis of football players and their quality revolves around what players do with the ball at their feet. But in actuality the physicality of the game and that can be everything from size and strength and power and hold up play to movement off the ball to just general footwork is so integral to what takes a player from a good level to an elite level. And what Cantona shows here in the ability, he's almost too close to the ball initially, which is a weird thing to say because obviously you want to be near the ball, but equally you need a little bit of room to maneuver your legs, swing through, have a shot and, and score the goal. And his reaction to David James's punch to back off, and as you said, as he's backing off, hit the shot first time. I'm still not sure how one of the Liverpool players doesn't block it. Yeah. And I, I watched it right before we came on here, and I'm just thinking, one of you's got to get something on that because it's it struck well, don't get me wrong, but it's not in the top corner. It kind of goes 
past. I think it might be Jason McAteer on the line who, if he wanted to have pulled a Luis Suarez, he could have done. And yet, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, it's in the net and, and cue pandemonium and United are headed to the trophy. Unbelievable, yeah. No, you make a very valid point there. It's um, a sign of an elite player and um, he was that. Well, I guess actually the, the, the right question to ask you, because I guess you were in the midst of it, maybe not old enough to fully remember the transition, but obviously you would have heard about Cantona and where you grew up. The yeah. the controversy surrounding Cantona's move from, from Leeds to United and then the success that he generated at Man United, is that a name that you can't say around certain people in that area? Is that something you have to be very careful with? It It, it is... A red flag to a bull, and yeah, it's beautiful that his name is still <laughs> the United fans go to Ellen Rhodes. It's yeah, I mean, he won the league with him. It was the last ever Division One title. He won, a, he won a medal um, with Leeds, and then chose to make a, a career move up the ladder, I guess. <laughs> and then um, yeah, that that animosity is still there. I mean, I think yeah, Rio coming from Leeds to United, Alan Smith. I mean, because he was from the terraces himself, but. I think the one that gets the Leeds fans the most, and obviously I can't speak on behalf of them, but I think the fact that Cantona left Leeds, came to United when we hadn't won the league title in 26 years, and then the five seasons that he's with us, we win the league title in four of those five years, and the one that we don't is the one he suspended for the Kung Fu kick. So, I mean, yeah, handing over a player like that and seeing one of your arch rivals benefit so gloriously from it. I think, yeah, I think that one stings the Leeds fans the most. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, we've benefited from that a couple of times, I guess, with Cantona and then with Robin Van Persie as well, are kind of the two that stand, <laughs> the two that stand out as uh, taking, a, taking a rival's player. I mean, you could even you could even argue that Michael Owen was worth it just for the winner against City. So, uh, you know... <laughs> We we won't we won't mention we won't mention Alexis Sanchez for obvious reasons, but um, no, 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 yeah, Cantona. I mean, do, where do you see Cantona in the pantheon of United players? Is he is he number one for you? I, I guess it depends what lens you're looking it through. I think if you're down to brass tacks, I think we've had more talented players in in our generation uh, in the Premier League. Have more technical players, players that can produce moments of magic. I don't know if, if they can match Cantona really, but like I said then, it's the impact it had. I think the fact you've had that 26-year drought of not winning the league. And he's the reason. He's the reason we, we turned it around. He was the final piece of the jigsaw. And then he was the, I just want to recycle other people's words, but the one you always hear, he was the catalyst for all that success when everything came to fruition for Fergie in the class of 92. He was the main man. So I think I, if he's not the greatest player that we've ever had, or the greatest player of our generation, I think he was the one that had the most significance. I think I think that's that's pretty fundamental. Beckham with a corner. It's towards Keane! Roy Keane with a captain's goal for Manchester United! Okay, goal number two for Danny. And this one is in 1999. A very, very famous season for Manchester United. The treble winning season. And we'll debate a little bit about the treble winners uh, as this one goes through. But we are in Turin in Italy 
for the Champions League semi-final second leg between Juventus and Manchester United. In the first leg at Old Trafford, it had finished in a 1-1 draw with Ryan Giggs scoring a 92nd-minute equaliser to give United a little bit of hope after Juventus had got the away goal uh, earlier in that game through now Spurs manager Antonio Conte. And Juve were a star-studded team at the time. Zidane, Conte, Filippo Inzaghi, they were an absolute stunningly good quality team to the point at which when Gary Neville was told after the quarterfinal uh, that they were playing Juventus, he puffed out his cheeks and went, oh, this was an uphill battle for United for sure. And early in this game, the aforementioned Inzaghi scores twice inside 11 minutes and United are down 2-0, knowing now that they have to score at least twice. And at this stage in their history, they'd never won in Italy. For spoiler alert, they turned it around, won 3-2, <laughs> went, went on to the Champions League final and won the Champions League. But the goal that we're talking about starts the fight back and is one of the most iconic goals in that treble winning season. We are talking Roy Keane in the 24th minute, David Beckham's corner, which is a theme in the first two goals. Beckham's corner swung into the near post and Roy Keane, as peak Clive Tildesley described it, Roy Keane with a captain's goal for Manchester United. And it's an it's a great moment. I vividly remember watching this. I myself was five watching this. And I remember sat on my living room floor in front of the TV, ITV football, Champions League, Tuesday or Wednesday night. I couldn't tell you for sure. But I remember Keane's header going in. And it starts one of the great fight backs at least to the Champions League trophy and completing the treble. But without Roy Keane, it would not be possible. So, Danny, take me back to your memories of this goal and why did this one make your Des Island goals list? Right, yeah. So, with this particular goal, mate, there's three different reasons why I put this one in. So, I immediately wanted a goal in there that was from the treble winning season. Um, not that Ollie's in the final was too obvious or anything, but with this one, there's just a couple of other layers to it as well that made it um, get itself in. So I knew if I had a Roy Keane goal in there, I'd be reminded of the greatest captain, I think, in my opinion, the Premier League has seen, um, which would, by extension, remind me of that whole rivalry with Arsenal that sort of served as the backdrop to our youth. And ultimately as well, I did think if I'm on a desert island, I'm guessing the end game is to try to escape the islands. And I thought if I was seeing Roy Keane score a goal, I'd sort of have his voice in my head, you know, you do your job, you do your job. And I would ultimately get off there at some point. So yeah, yeah, memories of Keane, memories of the treble and I guess that um, motivation to get myself off the island. (laughs) He's undeniably one of the great characters in football. And I think yes, part of that no. comes from his very obvious flaws. Shall we just say the name Alfinger Harland and leave it at that? But Keane <laughs> yes. was no nonsense to the nth degree, as we still see now uh, as a pundit on Sky Sports. And he is he's must-watch TV now in a very different way to how he was must-watch as a player. But he's never been anything if not fully committed. And I completely agree with you, you know, Definitely, for me, the greatest the greatest captain in Premier League history, though that won't be a surprise for many people to hear. 
And I think it's exemplified no other way more clearly than in this game, where he scores this goal to get United back into the tie and then receives a yellow card for chopping down Zinedine Zidane, which is by no means a bad thing to do against Juventus, considering he was pulling all the strings. But Keane gets booked, and he knows in that moment, after about half an hour, that he will not be playing in the Champions League final if United make it. That situation gives an incredible lens to look at the rest of his performance through, because he drove that team forward, was integral in running that game, and finding a way to get United into the Champions League final, even though he knew the personal glory would not be there for him in playing in the final. And that is probably about the most Roy Keane thing I can ever think of. Exactly that. Could not agree more. It was his finest performance as a captain. I think that's sort of unanimously being agreed upon by most United fans uh, that have a pair of eyes and were watching on the day. Yeah, an unbelievable performance to drag himself and the team through, knowing he wouldn't be there, like you just said. An outrageous effort. And yeah, I, mean, I, I love as well, it's... Watching that goal back, he, he doesn't really even pause to to celebrate, does he? If you if you watch the goal back, he, he glances the header in, sort of sees it go in, just taps Beckham's hand and then runs to the halfway line. Right, we're back in, get the ball. <laughs> and uh, as I remember it as well, that Juventus team. I, I mean, I don't know what it was at the bookies, but I imagine they were one of the favourites to win it that year. They seem to be all the way through the mid nineties. They were the team to beat, essentially, weren't they? And an yeah. outrageous. Just the players that you named there at the start of that as well, like Zidane, Deschamps was in it, Inzaghi when he was prime. It's, yeah, I'm trying That's to get the, the full lineups now so we can go through this because it's it is ridiculous. Okay, so the Juventus lineup for this game: Peruzzi, Ferrara, Delivio, Conte, Inzaghi, Juliano, Deschamps, Birindelli, Pesotto, Zidane, and I cannot believe I've forgotten until now to mention the goggled wonder himself, Edgar Davids. <laughs> I mean. That it's an incredible, it's an incredible team that Juventus have, coached by Carlo Ancelotti. Hardly, hardly a mug in the dugout, shall we say? <laughs> um, and on the United side of things, you know, Jesper Blomqvist started this game. Ronnie Johnson started this game, so perhaps it was no surprise they were two 0 down in eleven minutes. But this Juventus team was the real deal, and as you said, Keane flicks the header in immediately turns around, little fist bump, and then back to the halfway line to try and carry on, you know, getting the game back. And I've just realised as well that Keane's yellow card was the 33rd minute and York's goal to make it 2-2 was the 34th minute. Immediately after Keane knew he was out of the final, uh, United found a goal and then nicked it late on with Andy Cole. I guess, yeah, the, the question you kind of alluded to it earlier that you could easily pick one of, if not definitely the Solskjaer goal in the final. Yeah, the difference between this and that. You think you think the Roy Keane factor played a role in picking this goal? It did. Yeah, I mean, you're limited to five goals, and I was conscious of the fact that I already had Cantona's from a final, and I think with this one, there's a bigger meaning to it. Like it was Keane's performance over ninety minutes. If it was Solskjaer's goal, it was Solskjaer's moment there and then. I mean, I think he only kept on for the last was it, ten, fifteen minutes. Yeah. In the final, so it, 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 and yeah, I think having an insight and a tunnel into you know Roy Keane, who he is as a man, who he was as a captain, would definitely help me if I was stranded on an island, like I alluded to. You know what I mean? It's yeah. <laughs> what do you think of Keane in modern times? I guess as a manager and as a pundit, though probably more as a, a pundit now because he's not had the greatest of success as a manager. But I feel like part of that might just be down to 
Roy Keane demanding Roy Keane standards from other people may not be very easy to do. Yeah, I mean, as a pundit, I think he's absolutely box office. It's I, I, I don't even think that's just exclusive to Man United fans now as well. I think most people that tune into Sky Sports to watch him, yeah, if he's not there on Super Sunday, you feel kind of cheated to a degree. Um, as a manager, yeah, I remember he was successful, wasn't he, initially at Sunderland. And then not much success after that, was it? I think it was Ipswich. Um, did you go anywhere else after that? Or was it just Ipswich after Sunderland? Yeah, Sunderland, Ipswich. A little bit with the national team, the Irish national team, because Martin O'Neill was there. And then again, yeah. he was the assistant manager to Paul Lambert at Aston Villa. And then assistant manager in Nottingham Forest for about six months in 2019, but only made it six months. I mean, I wouldn't be reluctant to give him a roll of the dice if I was in, if I was, you know, a championship team wanting to get back to the Premier League or, I don't know, a Premier League team in a relegation battle. I think he'd ruffle feathers and get people in line, you know what I mean? But yeah, I guess I think he needs a more extended period within the game, don't he, as a manager before you can make a final sort of judgment call on the man on that front. But as a player and as a pundit, yeah, top tier, no doubts. Okay, goal number three. And we are at Old Trafford for the first time, perhaps surprisingly, on this list. Not the last time. But we are at Old Trafford. And interestingly enough, this goal is scored against Manchester United. And it is a very famous night for a number of reasons. This is Manchester United 4, Real Madrid 3 in the Champions League uh, quarterfinal second leg. United had lost the first leg 3-1 and did end up failing to qualify for the semi-final. Real Madrid went through. The story of this game is largely told through the lens of two men, one of whom starts on the substitutes bench for Manchester United in David Beckham, who would come on and score twice, including the eventual winning goal in the aftermath of his infamous spat with Sir Alex Ferguson that would lead to David Beckham actually playing for Real Madrid the season after this. But the true story of this game, the superstar of this game, is a man by the name of Ronaldo Luis Nazario de Lima, more commonly known as O Fenomeno, Ronaldo, original Ronaldo, R9, Brazilian Ronaldo, or if you want to be insulting, fat Ronaldo, were just a selection of the names that he was known by. To be completely honest, Fenomeno is right. He was an absolute phenomenon at the time. And this game showed you exactly why, as Ronaldo and Real Madrid arrived at Old Trafford. And he scored a hat-trick to help knock Manchester United out of the Champions League. He got his first goal just 10 minutes into the game. Pass from Guti that he smashed past Bartes at the near post. Ruud van Nistelrooy equalised for United before half-time. Gave them a little bit of hope. But in reality, I think most people knew that this was going to end one way. Ronaldo got his second goal after 49 minutes. United got an equaliser after 52. Little own goal. 
And then the goal that we're talking about, 57 minutes in, and Ronaldo smashes the ball from a full 25 yards out over Fabian Barthez's head and into the top right-hand corner and meant at that point United needed four goals to qualify, which did not happen. They got two, but we're never going to get four against a very, very talented Real Madrid team. Danny, obviously, a little bit of an interesting one here with you picking (laughs) a goal scored against United, but what a goal, what a performance, and what a player Ronaldo Fenomeno was. Talk me through why this one made your list. Yeah, well, I'm assuming you remember this as a child as well, but yep. first and foremost, yeah, with that, I always felt there was a, a huge sense of sort of mysticism about those Champions League nights on ITV back in the day, at the risk of sounding about a million years old here, before really the internet and social media or anything like that, or before, yeah, I didn't, in my household, it was, it was, you sort of look forward to those nights because... It was a very rare chance you got to see players from the continent play. Like There was no access to La Liga or anything like that, really, that I can remember. I seem to remember that night, it was the two European heavyweights coming together. It was all I could think about at school leading up to it. And then the calibre of players on the pitch that night is just ridiculous for a start. You've, got, you've even got like Kalina refereeing. It's just theatre at its absolute best. Um, well, let's 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 do this then. Let's let's run through the teams because I do think this is worth yeah, emphasizing. Right. So, I've already mentioned Fabian Barthez in goal. Can you name the United back four who were very very hapless in attempting to stop Ronaldo? I, I feel like Wes Brown was playing because Beckham was on the bench, but was he playing? Did he attempt to play him at right miss in front of Gary Neville, or was he in for Gary Neville? Gary Neville did not play in this game and was not named on the bench. I assume this was one of his injury times. So we had Wes Brown in the back four, I believe in the centre alongside Rio Ferdinand, which meant and then was right back was John O'Shea and left back was Mikel Silvestre, which is not the best Man United back four of all time. But in the midfield, the aforementioned Roy Keane, Nicky Butt and Juan Sebastian Veron. Giggs on the left and Van Nistelrooy and Solskjaer up front as obviously United had a quite attacking lineup, knowing they needed to go for goals. Phil Neville, David Beckham and Quinton Fortune were the Manchester United substitutes that were used. But on the other side, I'll just run you through this Real Madrid team. Casillas, Salgado, Hiera, Roberto Carlos, Helguera, Zidane, Steve McManaman, Boo, Figo, Makalele, Guti and Ronaldo. That is a nonsense of a team. <laughs> you can't begrudge United for losing that game whatsoever. And certainly not to the calibre of players and goals that they conceded. I had a conversation on a previous episode with Chris Madden, where he had a goal scored by Lionel Messi against Real Betis. That prompted the entire stadium to give him a standing ovation. And yeah, genuinely, there are, there are two examples that I can think of in my lifetime as a football player, a football fan, excuse me, where away fans have given players a standing ovation. And then there is Lionel Messi, who I feel like it happens to all the time. You know, that's the three. I tell a lie, I tell a lie, three. So the three examples I can think of of this happening are this goal with Ronaldo at Old Trafford. I think of Ronaldinho at the Bernabeu for Barcelona. And I think of the Cristiano Ronaldo overhead kick for Real against Juventus, which he has 
previously said the Juventus fans' reaction to that goal was part of the reason he wanted to go to Juventus was the respect they showed him there. But then, you know, I think Messi, it happened to him twice a season minimum because he was that <laughs> ridiculously good. But I, I honestly, like I said, in, the, in those situations, I cannot think of another time in English football that I remember that an English football crowd, which we can admit are often very, very tribal and very, very vocal yeah. and very supportive, yeah. but not always positive to the opposition, have given a player like this a standing ovation for decimating their dreams. Because that's what he did. Without doubt. I think I think that's testament to how good he was as well. I mean, I think the reason these past 10, 15 years, everyone sort of puts Messi and Ronaldo in that bracket above world-class and what you'd, you'd have to argue Lewandowski has a case for that as well now and why Haaland is sort of in that bracket now as well. Fundamentally, they're all going at a goal a game, aren't they? And if you look back at Brazilian Ronaldo's records before he has two horrific ligament injuries to his knee, he's doing that as well, you know what I mean? He, he had his season in Brazil, goes to PSV, goes to Barcelona, starts off into Milan. He's going at a goal a game and he's, he's Mbappe quick. He does his knee twice, he loses that primary weapon in his arsenal. And then how, on the back of that, he's still scoring in World Cup finals, he's still coming to Old Trafford on Champions League nights and getting a hat-trick. I think it's just... How can you not give the man a stand innovation? Do you know what so I mean? We're going to go through him right now because I know you want to talk about him as a player and it's yes. really very worth doing. So to, I've pulled up his Wikipedia because obviously that's where we get all our information from. To put him into <laughs> perspective, in 1993-94 season, he had 34 appearances for Cruzeiro in Brazil and he scored 34 goals. 94-96 to with PSV, he scored 42 goals in 46 appearances. 96 to 97 with Barcelona, he scored 34 in 37. 97 to 02, he scored 49 in 68 for Inter Milan, which is when he had these injuries. And he's still going at two and three. And then Real Madrid, 02 to 07, he scores 83 in 127. At the time he leaves Real Madrid in 07, everyone says he's finished. He goes to AC Milan, scores nine in 20, still every other game. And then he goes to Corinthians in Brazil and scores 29 and 52 between 09 and 11 when he retires, age 35. To put it into perspective, across his career, he scored 280 goals in 384 games. That's a ridiculous record for his entire career, regardless of injuries. I agree, yeah. Yeah. But uh, it begs the question, doesn't it? If he, if he ended up with those stats and... You know, that's with two horrific knee injuries and before that he was going at a goal a game. How good could he have been? Like how if if well when we had him at Old Trafford and he got that hat trick, if that's you know, he even looked a bit weightier then, didn't he, without firing shots or casting aspersions, it it, it did look a bit oh wait, he was still getting hat trick and taking the piss for lack of a better expression as so, well. I mean, yeah. If he was still that player that had all his speed at that point as well, it, it's frightening to think what he could have been, but yeah, a legend of the game. Like I said, that goal had to go in there despite being against Manchester United because, yeah, I made the point as well before, not being able to recycle goals on a loop on social media, on YouTube, on the internet, you know, it sort of cemented that moment in time when you were watching it, do you know what I mean? And even even when you watch that goal back now, sort of you can hear the ball hitting the net and everything about it is just beautiful. Everything about that goal is beautiful. And then the standard innovation that this fourth coming afterwards. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable. Well, 
And in watching the goal back before this, I found various different commentaries of it. And on one of them, the color commentator goes, and this is from a guy who's supposed to be finished, which is, like, I can't believe you said that on broadcast, but it's true that they were saying at that time in 03 that Ronaldo was finished and yet he played another eight, eight years. I should also say scored 62 and 98 for the Brazilian national team, which again, at international football, two and three is hardly a bad return, is it? I mean, he, he really was, I think, probably a precursor to Ronaldinho in terms of the first like truly marketable globally globally marketable footballer of that time like obviously yeah. Beckham like Beckham was doing predators the Adidas boots but the mercurials that have gone on to become one of Nike's staples were first made for this Brazilian Ronaldo like Is that before, true? I didn't yeah, know that. before wow. Cristiano before Cristiano took them over and ran with them Cristiano Ronaldo yeah Brazilian Ronaldo or Phenomeno was the original recipient of the Mercurial boots. And, you know, everything he did became, you know, trendy to an extent. Like his ridiculous haircut in the 2002 World Cup. (laughs) He had people copying it because he scored the winner in the final. I mean, he was was truly a phenomenon. I can't think of anyone who has more aptly lived up to their nickname than him. I would have loved to have seen him play in the Premier League at some point. And this is not a suggestion that like, if you don't play in the Premier League, you're not in any way relevant. But my point is, we've been very lucky, depending on how you look at it, that Erling Haaland has moved to the Premier League at an age where he's going to be around for a decade. For some of us, that might be a miserable decade, but he's, he's undeniably a talent and he's going to score a lot of goals. I just I can't think really when, it's, when in his career it would have made sense, but I would have loved to have seen him perform in England week in, week out. Yeah, but I wholeheartedly agree with that as well. I mean... Yeah, as much as it's going to be horrific times for me and Lee watching Haaland in, in the sky blue, I suppose it does show the strength of the Premier League now, doesn't it? As as much as everyone's saying it. The fact that, yeah, Ronaldo, original Ronaldo, among with other great players, had all gravitate towards La Liga, wouldn't they? Or, even in his day, he, he left Barcelona, didn't he, to go to Inter Milan when Serie A was the best league in the world. But I think this is now, we're living in a time where all the best players are ultimately going to want to come to the Premier League. But... It's a shame that didn't happen when, yeah, R9 was about. It would have looked good in the United Red, I'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) Vidic up from the back. Rooney, Nani and Berbatov in the centre. Short from Young to Patrice Everett. Looking for Scholes. God almighty, what a strike that was. No matter whether this affirmed it or not, that is a goal that gave the goalkeeper no chance whatsoever. How many times have we seen Paul Scholes do that? That could be our last time. All right, goal number four. And this is a little bit of history for Des Island goals. This is the first time a goal has been selected from a testimonial match which I had to have a think about for a second. I did. I, there was almost the point at which I was going to disqualify it for not being a quote-unquote competitive game. But I decided to allow it, and testimonial goals will, will continue to be allowable from here on in. We'll see, we'll see how many others we get. But this is Paul Scholes' testimonial match in uh, August of 2011 as he retired at the end of the 2010-11 season. And uh, we thought was going off into a happy retirement, only to eventually make his return uh, just a few months later 
This is Manchester United against the New York Cosmos, who are a little, they're an interesting story themselves, the Cosmos, a, a team that was very famous in America in kind of the 80s and 90s and then became defunct and then was effectively revived for this game with the eventual aim of becoming an MLS team, which did not happen in the end. Uh, but at this, at this day, it was an invitational team uh, of players from around the world who were invited to play on a one-off basis for the Cosmos. And the Cosmos were actually managed by Eric Cantona, who, according to the match report I read, got one of the loudest ovations of the entire night, unsurprisingly. And just nine minutes into his testimonial, a corner is played back to Paul Scholes, who takes a touch and rifles one into the top corner after just nine minutes, Old Trafford is almost laughing with celebration of, of course, Paul Scholes has done that immediately into his, into his testimonial. It's a great hit, but I want to know why this Paul Scholes goal. There are, there's a lot to choose from. There's many. But so, Danny, why did this particular one make your Desert Island goals list? Well, a few different reasons, but based on the point you've just sort of made there, I'm basically just trying to cheat the system with this one because, <laughs> yes, I, I, I was behind the goal when this went in. So, yeah, it was nine minutes in, like you say, very early on. And I just remember the ball coming across to Paul Scholes and it's like time slowed down. And I think I'm speaking for every other fan in the stadium that night as well. In that moment, when the ball's coming to him on the edge of the box and you're thinking this is the last goal he's ever going to score at Old Trafford, Every single one of those great Paul Scholes goals uh, from the edge of the area just flashed through my head, basically. So you're talking the Aston Villa one, the one at Valley Parade, the one at Middlesbrough, the one against Barcelona. <laughs> With this goal, Callum, I'm basically picking it because I know, by extension, this would lead me to remember all the great Paul Scholes goals. <laughs> yeah, other than that, I mean, sentimental reasons as well. It was the only time I've ever been to Old Trafford and seen Eric Cantona there because he retired before. I got the opportunity to do so. So, like you said, he got a standing ovation, which was a beautiful moment. Uh, I was behind the goal with my dad, and I mean, it was it was sort of the years leading up to to that moment that I'd actually started going to the games, and yeah, seeing Paul Scholes dictate play was probably the primary reason I loved going and was fascinated. Basically, it was a joy to watch him. Still, pound for pound, probably the best United player I've seen live, which I know is a big statement and just a matter of personal opinion. But, yeah, an outrageous footballer. And, again, another little funny anecdote towards the end of that. It was, I think I'd, in a drunken stupor, told most people under the sun that I've seen Paul Scholes' last goal at Old Trafford and then he obviously came out of retirement, didn't he? So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that one, but... Yeah, he's absolutely done you there, hasn't he, Scholes? That's <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm glad you brought up where you kind of place Scholes in in your United list of greats because that is a very obvious question. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about yeah. him and where he stands later on. But yes, the the strike itself is fantastic. And what I'll say is, this is not just any other goalkeeper in goal. This is Brad Friedel in goal for the New York Cosmos, who he's still was at that point. Yeah, he's, I mean, still, you know, he's, he's got he, Cannavaro in front of him, I think, and then Friedel in. <laughs> it was like. Everyone will look yeah. around like, why are you retiring? Like, <laughs> and I think that's part of what it is, is that, you know, there is part of me now that still thinks if Skulls came out of retirement today, he could rock up on Saturday and ping one from 30 yards in the top corner. He was that good. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't have to be playing week in, week out to be able to do that. And 
you know, the the thing that followed Scholes all through his career was, you know, he was, I guess, underspoken. He never really spoke to the media, which I respected, to be fair. And yeah, all these players around the world, the Zidans, the Iniestas, the Javis, would all talk about how good Paul Scholes was. And uh, there's a famous quote, yeah, I think it's Cristiano Ronaldo early on in his time at Manchester United. And he is talking about Paul Scholes telling him to hit a tree with a ball like 40 yards yes. away. And Scholes just stepped up and pinged it first time immediately. And Ronaldo said he was there for half an hour and couldn't hit it. And that's, you know, one of the greatest players of all time, Cristiano Ronaldo. And Paul Scholes is just uh, absolutely able to put the ball anywhere he wanted to. And in this, you know, right in the top corner with you behind the goal, that's a beautiful story. Absolutely love that. Scholes himself, is there a part of you that thinks he shouldn't have unretired? There's a part of me, that, and I know obviously we joked about we joked about the goal itself, and you know he, he came back, and you know I think he was still part of the squad in 2013 for the uh, the final Sir Alex Ferguson uh, Premier League. Yes. But there is there, there's definitely an argument that maybe he shouldn't have unretired, or maybe he shouldn't have retired in the first place and just carried on. I was just going to say, I think that's the question. I shouldn't. I, I don't think he should have retired, um, because yeah, I think he came back midway through the season that we ultimately. January. Oh, we don't need to reference the moment, but you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, so yeah, I beg the question: if you would have been there for the full for the full shaban, would we have found that that uh, extra point? But ifs and buts. But I mean, yeah, what a player! A fair few United fans will know. There's, there's all manner of videos and websites that list off all the quotes from greats of the game, from Maradona, Pele to Iniesta, Xavi, Zidane, that are kind of Put the man on a pedestal, so I don't think people need to take mine and yours word as gospel. But if you've got that many elite players and legends of the game saying it, then it must have done something right. Obviously, you and I were basically alive for the majority of Paul Scholes's United career and in the midst of it. Obviously, you said they're pound for pound best player that you can think of at United. Give me a little bit more on exactly why you have him at number one. What what was it about him that sets him apart from, admittedly, a very talented cast of characters around him at all times? I love the fact, and I don't, I don't particularly remember the days that he was playing as a striker, but he started his career coming out of the, the academy really playing as a striker, didn't he? And then kind of dropped back into several different positions. He had, was it a season or two behind Nistel Roy playing as number 10? Then kind of just playing in a diamond midfield of Keane a lot of the time. And then obviously the most joy I got from watching him was in that sort of deep line midfielder, uh, as a deep line midfielder, where he's just spraying passes about for fun. And yeah, I think to be able to adapt and be essentially world-class in every position he played at is is outrageous. And the longevity that he did it for, yeah, it's ridiculous. Putting balls on a sixpence for people. I, whether it's a 10-yard pass breaking the lines, whether it's 60 yards, 70 yards switching play, and again, don't just want to recycle other people's words, but it is always the phrase that gets sort of attributed to him, but dictating the tempo of a game, it was, I think, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest sort of praise you can give him is how obvious it became that he wasn't there anymore when he left. Do you know what I mean? I think if Fergie has to bring him out of retirement, that's sort of indicative in itself, but that whole period, you know, after Fergie left and we're in the the abyss, how many more points would he have got us in those seasons subsequent to Fergie leaving, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, begs the question. 
And, and I'll say that as well. It, I mean, the calibre of his goals that he did score as well, which is fundamentally the reason why I've picked a testimonial match so I can sort of, by extension, sneak all of his great goals in. But, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the one at Valley Parade. Have you ever seen anyone attempt that before? Corner straight on the volley. Boom. The one at Aston Villa on the underside of the bar. The one where he's striking it from the ground at the Riverside away. The Barcelona one. Barcelona, it's, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he could, he, I could quite easily have done a, a Desert Island goals and picked all five goals, false goals. You know what I mean? I actually think there is a future guest who is intending to do that, to be completely honest. Really? With you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you're aware of that episode when it comes out because he's, he's already told me that that's his plan. Um, is it going out? The only, if I, if we can, if someone out there knows how I can get Gary Neville on here, please get in touch. Um, the only thing that I think people try to hold against Paul Scholes is his perceived lack of success or lack of impact with England, which yes. I think is unfair because he's not the one picking the team and making the decisions. But yeah. I wanted to play you know, a larger game with you. They have, they have a thing over here in America where they ask you, we, we call it something slightly different in the UK, but they give you three options and they say start one, bench one and cut one. Well, so, I don't know where this is going, but yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure you do, but so if you so Paul Scholes, Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, how do, how do you figure that situation out, and what should England have done to maximise Paul Scholes? So with those three players, I have to say I'm starting one, I'm benching one, and I'm cutting one completely from the squad. Is that the yeah. game? And then okay, well I'm obviously going to say start Paul Scholes. And I would rank Gerard above Lampard, so I would bench Gerard and then leave Lampard at the bottom of the pile, which is, yeah, no disrespect to an unbelievable footballer. I just think, yeah, Gerard and Scholes were edged it for me. And what did you think of Scholes' England career, I guess? Shamble- well, to be, to be honest, this kind of segues nicely because as much as I've just put him as the bottom of that trio there, Lampard, the one who I've heard sort of explain it and the most sort of eloquently and with enough right, r- 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 enough rhyme and reason to it I think was his explanation I once heard him do an interview where he was saying that whole period of the golden generation we tended to play with two strikers didn't we whether it was Rooney and Heske Rooney and Owen and sort of freeing up that availability for a third midfielder by having Rooney occupy two centre halves on his own which he was more than capable of doing the obvious thing to do with, with hindsight is, yeah, have scores dropping in behind Lampard and Gerrard, isn't it? And that's been said a million and one times now. But it's, I'm trying to piece together the timeline. I can't, at that period in time, how, how deep was Scholes playing? Because I don't even know if he'd progressed that far back at that stage. But I mean, he, I, I look at kind of, you know, <laughs> let, let's call it 02 to 06, really, was kind of the time period yeah. where this became an issue, I'd say. Because you ended up with yeah. you know, the fame, the famous five-one against Germany. I, yeah. I think Gerrard's on the right and Scholes is in the middle, and then that kind of flips. And Eriksson ended up playing Scholes wider, if that makes sense. I think Scholes ended up mm-hmm. on the left with Beckham did, on the yeah. right and Gerrard and Lampard in the middle. Um, United at that time was very much still a four-four-two with Scholes and Keane or Nicky Butt maybe once every now and then sprinkle over oh, on when he arrived sprinkled into the yeah. middle too. Yeah. So I, I, you know, in a four-four-two. The way United played, it never really felt like it was a, a six and an eight, if that makes sense. It was almost no, two central midfielders. So, yeah. yeah, he definitely wasn't sitting that deep, though 
you know, he definitely could have done it. And Gerard, you know, weirdly enough for Liverpool, Gerard flitted all over. The only the only one of them that never changed their position was Lampard. Like Lampard did what Lampard did his whole career. Whereas yeah. Gerard went right mid, holding mid, number ten, number eight, everywhere yeah. for Liverpool, depending on the manager and the system. So yeah, it, it's it's an age old question, and I, I don't mean to debate a played out topic, but I it always baffled me that. Gerard Scholes Lampard as a midfield three was never suggested. Though I guess the question then is, you know, do you want to go with Beckham on the right? And I don't even know who they would have had on the left. Maybe Kieran Dyer on the left with 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 Owen up front. I mean, I'm I'm not entirely sure if Owen up front on his own would have worked as well as you know Owen and Heskey did for England for a little while. I guess yeah, but when it gets to the point, I don't. I'm not sure Owen could have occupied two centre halves on his own, and I might be speaking completely out of line there, but. I think, yeah, Rooney, without a shadow of a doubt, could have done that on an international stage. I don't know. Um, it seems so obvious now, looking back, doesn't it? But I think that was the answer. Skull sitting with Gerard and Lampard in front of him. And I will say as well, that, I mean, the reason I put, one of the reasons I put Lampard as the player that's caught in that trio, I think you'll agree with this as well. As a United fan, watching United go up against Gerrard or Lampard, maybe it was just because it was Liverpool and it was so heated and the games were that aggressive. I was a lot more fearful of what Gerrard was bringing to the table than Lampard was, you know what I mean? That might just be yeah, the sort of Derby Day element to it, but I always felt Gerrard was going to give us more problems than Lampard was. And statistically, he definitely did. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I mean, I, 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 I want to finish this by you know circling back to you know Skulls himself and and the goal itself. You know, the the thing that really makes me laugh, and you can maybe speak to this specifically about this goal is it's a testimonial. It's nine minutes in. Skulls gets the box. Skulls gets the ball on the edge of the box, and you can hear the entire stadium say "shoot." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Indeed, I, that, that's what, I don't think there's been a more obvious like willingness of that many people all at the same time for something to happen, and it just didn't disappoint. One touch, bang, top corner against the keeper that's still playing in the Premier League. Um, yeah, special moment. Eric Cantona on the touchline as well, um, behind the goal. Yeah, so that one had to be in there. I'm not, I'm just maybe I'm just a bit edgy, you know what I mean? I wanted to put a testimonial goal in something <laughs> that no one to do it, you know. Maybe it's me and an ego after it. Don't get back to his feet. England press regardless with Shaw. And now Grealish. Grealish in! In comes the captain! Championship has begun. Germany's might be ending. Okay, goal number five, our fifth and final goal. And Danny very kindly provided them in chronological order. So this is by far and away the most recent goal on Danny's list. And what a goal it is too. A very special one. And we are back at Wembley, a very different Wembley, but back at Wembley for England against Germany in Euro 2020, held in 2021. It's the round of 16, England against Germany, and Harry Kane scores the goal to put England 2-0 up with four minutes left. 
And England are heading to the quarterfinal, having finally beaten a real team in a knockout game for the first time in a long time. This game was tense, to say the least, for the majority of the first 75 minutes, where Raheem Sterling eventually gave England the lead, following a great cross from Luke Shaw, and Raheem Sterling was there to tap it in, in the right place at the right time. And Shaw is actually instrumental in this goal as well, stealing the ball from Germany in the midfield, driving forward, playing it out wide to Jack Grealish, and Jack Grealish's cross is slightly unorthodoxly headed in by Harry Kane, who looks like he's kind of crumpling his body to get a touch on the ball. Ball goes into the net. Cue pandemonium. Danny, for the listeners, where were you? And tell me your memories of this day. Again, I'll I'll start this one by saying um, it's not necessarily the beauty of the goal itself. It was, you will see more technical and more pleasing goals on the eye, but what this goal signifies and what it meant Obviously not just to me, but the tens of millions watching it in England leap around with joy with. This was just an unbelievable moment in what was an unbelievable summer. As I'm imagining you will be as well, mate. It was, we were too young to sort of appreciate that whole period of Euro 96. That sort of just passed me by. And all you kept hearing about for the whole time after that was about how momentum was just building in the capital. And it was an unbelievable time to be an England fan. And... I think that's what happened for that summer um, at Euro 2021. And that, mom, that moment against Germany put a lot of demons to bed. And it kind of, I remember waking up the next day and it was one of those where everything, it was one of those days where everything felt possible all of a sudden. As <laughs> <laughs> deep and poetic as that is, Jesus, it was just, yeah, it was like a monkey off the back. And we beat them fair and square. After all that time, we beat them fair and square. Yeah, an unbelievable moment. I'm not sure there's a, a game of that's that's of bigger significance to an Englishman than that one. And we came up trumps and the captain delivered. Great commentary to go with it. And yes, where was I specifically? So as you well know, I was in a boozer called the Crooked Billet. There was some tension at the beginning of the day because one friend was conscious that we wouldn't have good visibility of the screens in there due to um, <laughs> the weather. But everything played out perfectly in the end. And, yeah, I remember it was just bedlam in there and such a good atmosphere. And, yeah, that wave just carried on for a few games more, all the way to the final, all the way to the penalty shootout. But despite that moment not coming good and winning the tournament, I think, yeah, I can't always look back on that tournament with a smile for that Germany game, for that hurricane goal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I seem to remember that I jumped on you at some point in the kind of pandemonium <laughs> after this one I think you know there was there was a lot of screaming and shrieking going on and it was a you know very valid celebration <clears throat> we, we definitely broke the table that we were sat at oh, which was, yeah, which was basically just like a big trunk <laughs> it was a, it was a lump of wood I don't know how we broke it but we did it, it's funny the, the 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 sigh of relief that went round the pub when Thomas Muller missed his chance to make it one yes. one was only yeah. matched by the sigh of relief when all of a sudden it's two nil with five minutes left and you know now yeah. We're, there yeah. and we're safe. I, I I love this goal for a number of reasons. I'm still not quite sure how he managed to get his head on it because the cross from Grealish is actually a little bit behind him. And I I, I watched yeah. it back earlier and it's it's actually a remarkably close offside call as well which in previous years without VAR, you might have seen given. 
and then maybe we don't have this moment. But you know, the goal the goal itself is is a really nice counter attack from England, and the celebrations that ensue under afterwards are just wonderful. Richly deserved as well. Yeah, yeah, like you alluded to there, the, it felt like, well, the cross a little bit sort of behind the trajectory yeah. of his run, wasn't it? But it was it was high I mean, and it was a little bit back, and he almost had to you know contort his body to get contact on it. But I mean, yeah, he's a. Uh... There's not many other strikers you'd want in that position than Harry Kane is, and I think that was his big moment of the summer. But Q Bedlam as well, and like I said, riding that wave of momentum. I think was it Denmark? It was Denmark in the semis. Yeah. So after this one, it then was Ukraine in the quarterfinals, which was a seamless four nil, very easy from the moment Kane scored after two minutes. And I guess the key point of this goal is this was his first goal of the tournament. He'd gone through the group stage scoreless, and then finally. Got this one, got two against Ukraine, got the winner against Denmark, and you know had what turns out to be a pretty good tournament, all things considered. But before this game, there were serious concerns about the fact that Harry Kane hadn't scored. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, and it was lift off for him, and I think it was, I think that was the point where belief really li- like sort of took off as well, wasn't it? it was, we've beaten a major team at an international tournament. It's not just any, it's any team. It's it's the old arch enemy. And anything seemed possible at that point, like I say. And yeah, being in London for that summer was an amazing time to be alive and just seeing it all grow. I think, yeah, coming out, trying to get home after the Denmark game, <laughs> it was just the street. The streets were just packed with people. You couldn't move in a car, people on top of buses. And it was like, yeah, it was joyous. It really was joyous. And just a shame it didn't come good. But well, hopefully one day in the lifetime it does. Yeah, and, that, and that's the question, you know, we... I don't really want to talk about Qatar right now, but yeah. we, you alluded to it earlier. Obviously, the final against Italy, it starts really well with Luke Shaw and didn't yeah. end so well as the penalties as we know. Is there any part of the memory of this goal that is dulled at all by the fact that we didn't win the tournament? No, no for me. No, I'm looking at it in isolation. Where I was in that moment, how happy I was. And like I said, it was waking up that next morning thinking anything is possible because... We don't beat Germany. We just don't beat the Germans at football, do we? Like, it, it don't happen. All the pain and, like... I mean, I, I kind of touched on it right at the start as well. Like, that that difference in following in my dad's, dad's footsteps rather than my mum's side of the family and being ushered into being a Man United fan instead of Bradford City and that side of the family. I was saying, you'll never experience anything like we did at Stamford Bridge, that FA Cup upset with Bradford City. Like supporting England, it's it's treachery for for anyone, isn't it? Like of our generation, we've not seen any success at all. Mainly heartache in the cruelest way with penalties. So yeah, to have that moment, and even if it was just a fleeting moment of belief that took us to the final and penalty shootout, it was it was unbelievable to experience. Do you have any hope that we might be able to repeat that level of success in Qatar in November? Well, I think the one big advantage we've got this year is that's been quite well documented it is the fact that we're not going into an international tournament having lacked a winter break like lots of the other nations on the continent do get to dine out on um i suppose in the midst of um the queen dying as well that's an additional two weeks you can put on top of that as well so we are going into it on a level playing field in that sense which we've never done before but yeah i'm the thing I was try- trying to reel off the other day, if you look at the players that started for Southgate in the final against Italy, all the players he brought on, 
there's a long list of them that are either not playing for the clubs now or playing for the clubs week in, week out, I should say, or are out of form or are just about finding form. I mean, Luke Shaw, not playing for United anymore. Maguire, not playing for United's first 11 anymore. Calvin Phillips, he's not in City starting 11. Jack Grealish, is he living up to the hype? Rashford and Sancho are just about finding form now after a long time in the abyss. Phil Ford, and even by his unbelievable high levels, is he is he operating at his usual stratospheric levels? I think he's got a tricky job, Southgate. I think he's got us where he has in the last two tournaments by being very pragmatic. But yeah, if the players that he's sort of dined out on for that pragmatism at, at playing or in form, I think he's got a big task on his hands. And I don't know, was it? I don't want to read too much into that, but the last friendly we had was that the that the four nil that we lost. Yeah, I th- and I think the Nations League this week against Italy and Germany. So we'll see how that goes. I think, yeah, I think I think it's going to be an interesting one of these next two international games. But I mean, it could be it could be a blessing in, in the sense that I think one of the things that served Southgate really well going into his first tournament, that 2018 World Cup. Do you remember any England team going in into a tournament with? less expectation than that World Cup. Not at all, like the media circus that usually hypes us up before. And after that Iceland exit in 2016, I think all hope had diminished. And the fact that there wasn't this sort of inherent belief that, oh, yeah, we're going to make it, this is our year. I think that served him well. And we just rode that wave to the semis. And then, yeah, fair play to him. We had the home advantage in the Euros. But, you know, we kind of got where we were on merit. Like I said, we beat Germany fair and square. But... I think it's going to be hard this time. I think there's teams in that tournament that are better than us, put it that way. So I think you'd have to be a genius to win as the win as the tournament. But like I say, who knows how big an advantage it is going into it with a with fresh legs. We shall see. Okay, we've made it through Danny's list of five Desert Island goals. Just by way of a very quick recap, we started with Eric Cantona against Liverpool in the FA Cup final. We had Roy Keane against Juventus in the Champions League semi-final in 1999. We had Ronaldo Nazario, Fenomeno, Real Madrid against Manchester United in the Champions League quarterfinal in 2003. Paul Scholes against the New York Cosmos in his testimonial in 2011. And Harry Kane for England against Germany in Euro 2020, round of 16. So, Danny... It's a great list, lots of really good goals, lots of really good moments, and the stories that you've told make complete sense as to why those are your five goals. But were there any goals that you wanted to give an honourable mention to, goals that just missed out, or goals that for some reason could not be on your list, despite maybe they should be? A long list of goals, to be honest with you. Um, I suppose the first ones that spring to mind, the overhead kick, Rooney against Manchester City. Owen's last-minute goal against Manchester City for that 4-3. The obvious goals in terms of, you know, Solskjaer at the new Camp, Ronaldo's header against Chelsea, 2008. A long list of Ronaldo goals, to be fair. The one where he hangs in the air against Roma, the one from 40 yards against Porto, the solo run against Fulham. And, yeah, I think there were several unbelievable Rooney goals that didn't make it in, which I'm sort of heartbroken about. The volley against Newcastle. With two against Middlesbrough in the cup that were outrageous. Um, his debut again, another unbelievable night. The list goes on. Uh, yet what one standout I have to say as well that was, if you remember me saying, one of the fundamental reasons Roy King's goal was in it was 
something to remind me of the treble winning season, something to remind me of that whole backdrop of the Arsenal rivalry as we were growing up by virtue of his rivalry with Vieira was that 99 goal. But Ryan Giggs against Arsenal in the FA Cup obviously didn't feel it was the right thing to do to put that man on a pedestal given current climate. And then other ones, let me think, let me think. I would, I think Beckham's halfway line goal, I'd be doing that based on a previous memory. I don't remember that goal being scored. Like, I don't remember where I was at the time. Nistelroy gave me so many happy moments. The one against Fulham, where he just skins everybody. You'd have to say as well, it's scummy, but uh, Nistelroy's penalty against Arsenal. <laughs> the, the, end, the end of the 49. Um, after Saul Campbell chopping down Rooney viciously in the box to get the penalty. Terrible tackle, terrible tackle. Yeah, I mean, one of my favourite games of football ever, the 4-2 at Highbury, when we were dressed in all black. John O'Shea's chip, that was outrageous. And again, this is going back to Paul's goals and him as a player. That assist to put him through just outside of the foot. One touch, boom, you're in. Chip it, Shazer. Yeah, long list of goals and I've probably forgotten so many. But some of the goals Berbatov scored, man. Like, he, he was an artist. Like, he really was. I think he scored the first ever goal I saw, Scott saw live at Old Trafford. Yeah, some unbelievable moments from that man. There was one goal. Do you remember the game he scored five goals against, was it Blackburn? Blackburn, yeah. There's one goal where he starts the move and finishes the move, and it's yeah. it is just it is just beautiful. It is yeah, it's that that turn of phrase, but poetry in motion. Some of Beckham's free kicks, man. The the one for England that sticks out. Um, my aunt decided to get married that day, which was an absolute disgrace. And our my brother, my uncle, he um he was working as a crowd doctor at Old Trafford and was like, I can't get out of work. I can't get out of work. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, he was there. Brilliant. Some of the York and Cole ones. This, this, I just thought, like I said, my first ever football in memory was Cantona 96, that FA Cup final goal. But I only had like a real concept of what I was watching like by so, by the time it sort of got to that treble season. So I, I just thought that's what football was. Do you know what I mean? That level of quality. <laughs> I thought that's what my life was going to be forever. But yeah, the, the one in the new camp where it's just pure telepathy. Outrageous. Outrageous. Rooney's. I remember Rooney getting one against AC Milan. I think it was the season before we won the Champions League. And I have to say as well, and this will be the last one. I, last one I say, but a goal that sums up everything you'd want Man United to be about, and made all the more beautiful by the fact it was Leeds' boy scoring it was Alan Smith against Roma in the seven-one. Unbelievable team goal. One touch passing, box to box, speed. Accuracy, precision, um, and that was just the that was a majestic night. That was that was as good as you're going to see as a team performance, isn't it? Seven one against an outrageous Roma team as well. Daniel De Rossi playing with a good goal himself to boot. But the very very last ones I'll mention as well. Going back to Roy Keane once more. The Roy Keane uh, two goals at Highbury. While they were great goals, just with the celebration trademark shared this in front of the fans at Highbury against an unbelievable Arsenal team. And, yeah, showing Vieira how to be a captain and a player. <laughs> I meant to mention it earlier, but I completely forgot that apparently Patrick Vieira played for the New York Cosmos that night. He did, yeah, he did. It was, um, there was, who was there? I think it was, Cannavaro was playing, Friedel was playing, Vieira was playing. I yeah, I tried, to, I, tried to find, I tried to find a full lineup and I couldn't find it anywhere online. But Vieira was apparently 
the only booze of the night were for Vieira coming on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was booed the whole time. It was it was um, warming up. Oh, mate, come with, right. So the Roy Keane goal, that's the only one that we... I, I wanted that to segue into some conversation about the United-Arsenal rivalry from my youth as well. So there's, there's, I had one more question and I'll ask you on that as well, which was yeah. because we talked a lot about the treble team. Yeah. And this is a debate that goes on forever. The better team, 98-99 or 07-08, both won the Champions League, both won the Premier League, the treble team won the FA Cup. If you had to take one, do you take the treble team of the class of 92, Keane, York and Cole, <laughs> or do you take the 07-08, Rooney, Tevez, Ronaldo, still got skulls, Vidic and oh. Ferdinand and Evra, Van der Sar, which, which one do you think was... You know, if they played each other in a one-off game, who wins? That's a disgusting question. Um, <laughs> right, so I'll, I'll try to talk through my reasoning and I'm crystallising my own thoughts here as I go, so this will hopefully lead to some sort of determination. Um, so what have you got? You've got Schmeichel up against Van der Sar, both outrageous, but I think Schmeichel edges that one. The defence, I mean, Yapstam was either getting partnered with Ronnie Hansen or Henningberg wanted, but you can argue. Well, you can argue. You can state that Stan was on the same level as as Rio and Vidic in terms of his caliber, his presence, and his impacts. But I think if you're bringing in the centre halves as a duo, I don't think I've seen anything quite at that level as Rio and Vidic when they were in the prime. Fullbacks, ever win? Ah, oh, that's horrible. And then on the other side, it was Wes, Wes Brown had the season of his life, didn't he? Right back, it was outrageous. It was absolutely outrageous. Um, a little bit, of Owen, a little bit of Owen Hargreaves sprinkled in, but mainly Wes Brown. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I can't. I, I literally can't get away from like. I'm going to skip the midfield and come back to it because I think that is going to be my determining factor. But if you've got the forward line, Tevez, Rooney, and Ronaldo in the prime as a front three, I don't think. I don't think it's been better. You can argue with the front threes have been on that same level, thinking MSN, Liverpool's front three at times, but that front three was outrageous, them three in the prime together. But York and Cole could hold their own. They were the most fierce strike partnership in Europe. And then I come back to it, that is, in terms of a midfield far, I think it's the greatest midfield far of all time. When you had Ryan Giggs, Keane, Scholes and David Beckham together as a unit, that was that was outrageous. And I think the game is predominantly won and lost in midfield, isn't it? So I'm going to go for the treble winning team, Colin. As much as it is a disgusting question to answer, and I don't think either would let me down. No, I don't think either would let you down. That's an interesting, interesting. The debate then comes into, you know, the top five Premier League teams of all time, where for me, I would have both of those. I would have the Arsenal Invincibles. I would have the original Mourinho Chelsea team. And then... You know, really, you've then got to choose. Do you want a Klopp Liverpool team or a Guardiola Man City team? Which is a choice I don't want to make. But yeah, I mean, you, you briefly, just, just to finish this off, you briefly touched on, obviously, the Arsenal-Man United rivalry of 1999. People have tried to compare Liverpool and Man City to it now, but I don't get the sense that there's anywhere near enough genuine hatred and dislike between both the fans and the teams themselves. I, I, I don't get the impression we'll ever see another... Keane, Vieira, Ferguson, Wenger, Van Nistelrooy, the entire Arsenal back line. Like, I, I don't think we'll ever see a rivalry quite like it again in Premier League history. Not at all. And I think the thing that sort of ratifies your point there, 
Liverpool and Man City are, unite, uh, are united by this inferiority complex they both have towards Manchester United. <laughs> no, maybe not as much anymore. But, I mean, the United and Arsenal rivalry, the level of animosity, it wasn't just between the fans, was it? It was the players hated each other. The managers hated each other. Like, it was it was visible. It was so obvious on the eye. Um, it was from the stands onto the pitch into the dugout and... Whatever you say about this Liverpool City rivalry, there is a level of respect there between Guardiola and and Klopp that just wasn't wasn't present between Ferguson and Wenger. It was it was shots in the press, it was shots from the from the dugout, and the whole thing was epitomised beautifully by that um, rivalry on the pitch between Keane and Vieira, which I don't think you've seen a one on one rivalry like that before in the Premier League um, or since, and. I don't know where's the matchup in that sense in this Liverpool and City sort of rivalry. You can argue that's going to take off now with Haaland and Van Dijk. That's going to be the the key area of fascination. But yeah, those battles between Keane and Vieira. I don't think you're going to see a better rivalry than that. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we went off on a bit of a tangent there, but I thought it was important to kind of wrap it all up in a nice bow. As as the first Manchester United fan on this podcast, you are giving us <laughs> the insight. Uh, you won't be the last, but you are giving us the insight into uh, United fandom and everything there. Danny, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been wonderful. A lot of fun. Five great goals. And yeah, just delighted to have you as part of our Des Island goals history. No worries at all, mate. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure talking to you about football as always, mate. So yeah, I'm happy you've, you've got this off the ground and I look forward to listening to more episodes, pal. Thank you, Danny. Well, yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank you for tuning in, as always. Um, we'll have more episodes each week as, as we continue to go. Again, if you're interested in being a guest, especially if you're a fan of a non-Big Six team, I should say, because we want to make sure we are giving adequate attention to football fans from all over the world and all up and down the leagues, please get in touch. We'd love to have you on. And, yeah, thank you for taking the time to share a little bit of your week with us. All the best. and um, We'll see you very soon. Cheers. 